listening to the Barcode Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. What the? Yo, why is this door locked? Yo, what up, Chris? Yo, man, you got your ID on you? Rico, my man, wait, I'm literally here every night and you need to see my ID? Yeah, man, we're implementing a zero trust policy here. So unfortunately, no one is exempt, not even you. All right, I can respect that. Here you go. Cool, man, thanks. I think Tony is in there waiting for you. All right, cool. Oh, tell the fam I said hello. Yo, what's up, guys? Tito, good to see you, man. Oh, hey, Chris. Wow. Did you see that fight the other night? You know I did. That was a crazy knockout, man. But my boy Jake Paul coming for him next. <laughs> you wish, bro. That dude is an amateur. He's a fraud. Hey, Tone, what's up, man? Hey, mind if I see some ID? You got to be kidding me. First, I get hit up by your parking lot attendant. Then Rico hits me up at the front door. Now you? Unfortunately, this ain't no joke. We're running a zero-trust operation up in here. You know how it goes. Okay, here you go. All right, now you're authorized to order a drink. Well, thank you, sir. Let me get a glass of that bourbon. You know the same one I had last night. Sorry, bud, I can't do that. What do you mean you can't do that? You need to see my ID again? Nah, you finished that bottle off last night, bro. Plus, I got a wicked new drink I want to try on you. Think you're going to love it. Trust me. We call it the Python. It's one and a half ounces of white rum, one ounce of mint liqueur, and one ounce of pineapple juice. You're going to shake it, strain it over a glass of ice, squeeze a half a lemon in there, top it off with 7-Up, and garnish it with a lime wedge. Cool, man. Well, I need to make my way over to that high top over there. You got it, man. We'll see you next round. John Kindervog is a former principal analyst at Forrester Research, field CTO for Palo Alto, and current senior VP and group fellow at Ontuit. He's considered one of the world's foremost cybersecurity experts and is best known for creating the revolutionary zero trust strategy for cybersecurity. John, thank you for joining us at Barcode. It's a pleasure to have you join us. Thanks, guys. It's a, it's an honor to be here. It's always good to talk to people who are doing this stuff in real life. So, Thank you. And uh, of course, my special co-host again, Mike Elkins, is in the building. What's up, Mike? What's up, Chris? Pleasure to be here. John, nice to meet you. Hey, you too. So, John... I got to ask you this right up front, directly from the source. Would you mind explaining to all of our listeners what exactly is Zero Trust? Zero Trust is a cybersecurity strategy that identifies that the fundamental problem in what we now call cybersecurity is a broken trust model. The idea that there are trusted and untrusted parts of an environment and that the trusted side should have access to everything and the untrusted side doesn't have access. And if we do that, it's great. And it doesn't recognize the fact that trust is actually 
a dangerous vulnerability uh, because trust is a human emotion that's been injected into digital systems for no reason at all. So I'm fighting this idea of trust in digital systems and zero trust eliminates the concept of trust in digital systems. And by doing so, it forces us to focus on actually protecting something, not just relying on a very silly idea about trust. Yeah, thank you for that explanation. And, and it really makes sense to me. In organizations, it can become confusing or misunderstood in many ways. For example, you hear about zero trust products or, you know, the zero trust silver bullet that vendors are pushing. Is this something that you have noticed as well? Sure, of course. I mean, zero trust for a lot of people is a product and the, the definition of it changes based upon the product you're trying to sell. So if you're selling MFA, then MFA is a zero trust product, right? If you're selling um, uh, the zero trust network access and for all of the listeners out there, I'm doing air quotes. Uh, if you're selling, which is essentially an SSL VPN system, uh, then then it's a, that's what zero trust is, right? Uh, whatever you're, if, if you sell a proxy, zero trust is a proxy. If you sell a this, zero trust is a this. And zero trust is none of those things. It's a strategy. It brought strategy to cybersecurity for those people who are, um, you know, uh, clued in enough to understand that. And a lot of people are. So when you look at the Biden executive order of May 12th, mandating that all federal government agencies move towards a zero trust model, it's not because there were great technologies that resonated within the federal government, it was because the strategy was resonant. And so zero trust was designed to resonate to the highest levels of any organization, yet be tactically implementable using existing off the shelf technology at whatever level that technology is. So the strategy of zero trust is abstracted uh, and decoupled from the technology. The technology will always change. The strategy doesn't have to. And so if you want to be strategic in the world of cybersecurity, you must adopt zero trust because there are no other cybersecurity strategies. Everything else that people thought was strategic, like defense in depth or whatever, is just tactical. It's stuff. So I spend a lot of time explaining the difference between strategy and tactics. And you have a network engineering background, right? So did the development of zero trust spawn from the lack of strategy? you observed, you know, outside of the tech. Sure. You know, I, I remember uh, getting off stage once at, at VMworld uh, during an early uh, presentation on zero trust. And a guy walked up to me and he says, I can't decide whether the person who created zero trust, and of course he knew it was me, but he said, I can't decide if the person who created zero trust uh, is a networking guy doing security or a security guy doing networking? And I said, yes, right. That was the huge advantage I had in my career starting so long ago. I mean, my, the first network I put in was an Apple talk network in 1984. So when you, when you've seen it all and literally all of it, uh, you go, Oh, okay. 
and you can see the flaws in it there. And so the second paper was called Build Security into Your Network's DNA. My goal is to merge networking and security, uh, no matter where those networks are, because they're in clouds, right? I have people tell me there's no more networks because we're all going to the cloud. I'm like, there's networks in clouds. No, they're not. Yeah, there are. There are networks in clouds. Somebody once told me there's no more servers in clouds. I said, really? They said, haven't you heard of serverless? Uh, yeah, I have sort of heard of serverless. I asked this person, where do you think the data is stored? And they said, uh, DNA, it's stored in DNA. And I thought, oh, and you're, you're a tech executive. Great. Uh, so we've gotten away from the fundamentals. This is the problem, right? Uh, I was doing a, you know, I was starting it down as I don't have any cer current certifications, but I, for, for interest, I started going down a cloud certification path. And when I got to the robust security controls that they have called ACLs, which stands for access control list, and those were robust, I thought, okay, well, I'm stopping this. That's going to be a waste of my time because people think an ACL is a robust security control. And they don't realize that it's pretty easy to toast those things. So I don't know. We're, we're back at the beginning of the 20th century and making the mis same mistakes of the past because the people who are, um, you know, coming up in the industry never experienced the mistakes of the past. So what is it that it's it's often said that uh, if, if you if you forget uh, the past, you're doomed to repeat the mistakes of the past. Yeah, that's a, it's a good quote. When when you're engaging with these organizations and trying to help them understand the difference in this model being more strategic versus tactical and technical, because I know as engineers, we tend to get very, very deep into the problems to try to solve the problem. And it takes an opportunity to pause, step back and look at things at the 10,000 foot level. What are some of the challenges you're seeing across industries or across organizations that are, you know, top two or three that, that maybe you want to call out? Well, I mean, I think for, for, for me, it, the people who have understood this easiest are leaders, right? The leadership of organizations, no matter what, whether it's a business organization or a government organization, understand that because it talks the language of business. And IT people don't talk the language of business or even understand business. I'll give you a great example. Uh, I was talking to the CEO of a company and he was telling me about his IT leader. Uh, an IT leader came into him very excited. Hey, we accidentally discovered some hackers trying to steal our source code. And they were like expecting some big kudos from him. And he was what he was, he said, uh, what do you mean you accidentally discovered them? Isn't that the, the, the main thing we're protecting is our source code? And they said, oh, no, we protect endpoints. You know, you know look at our antivirus catch rate. We haven't had a you know, fish get through in forever. And he's like, you don't realize somehow that 100% of our revenues comes from this source code? And they're like, no, I never thought about it, right? They don't know how they get paid. And so when I was at Forrester, I did the primary research on this. I, I looked at IT leaders versus uh, business leaders, and I asked them to stack rank in priority 
uh, things they were concerned about. And the, the three things that business leaders were most concerned about were increasing revenue, increasing profitability, and stopping data exfiltration. And it turned out um, that those were the bottom three things that the IT leaders cared about. They cared about reducing ticketing times and and uh, they cared about stopping more viruses or whatever. They cared about tactical things. And so it's always been hard for for those people to understand what I'm doing because they don't think in strategic ways. And if you want to be successful, you need to start thinking more strategically because that's the conversation you're going to have with business leaders. I've often heard IT people say, well, we want, we believe in, you know, we want to align with the business. But when I talk to them, they want the business to come down to their level. You know, I talked to so-and-so about this spanning tree problem we have, and he didn't understand anything about spanning tree. And I'm like, do you understand anything about profitability? Right. So, but he's never going to care about spanning tree, nor should he. But you better care about the profitability of the company if you want to keep your job. So you have to move up and start learning his language or her language, right? I mean, whatever the the leaders, the, the language of leadership, you need to learn the language of leadership and not expect them to come down to your language, which is plumbing and wiring, right? The architect of a building uh, talks to the the CEO of the company who's who's giving the building, uh, you know, the, the, the paying for the architect, um, the architect doesn't even care about the plumbing and wiring. That's like a whole bunch of subcontractors down below. They care about the usability of the building and the beauty of the building, but not the plumbing and wiring. And what we need to understand is that as IT people, we need to have good plumbing and wiring, sure, but that's all it is, is plumbing and wiring. And the business looks at it that way. And until we can show that we're the structure of the company, we're not going to get the kind of respect that we think we deserve. You know, my, my power was out last night. And, uh, and that's a real disruption. But again, it's just, you know, a substation went down somewhere for, in a storm. And there was nothing I could do about it. And I had to wait on somebody else to do something about it. And what I want is the power on, right? And how the wiring was done between here and there, I don't really care about. So we spent a lot of, we spent too much time worrying about things that, that yeah, are part of our day-to-day jobs, but we need to understand them in the context of the over, overarching uh, mission of what we're doing. And so zero trust allows you to become mission focused. What is the mission of your organization? If you're uh, a business, your mission is to make money. 100%. That's it. I mean, it's very simple, right? Because out of making money, you get paid. Yep. And, and, and sometimes I talk to people and they don't understand how they get paid, right? That, that layer of education to understand that money comes in and money goes out and you're part of the outgo of money. Uh, is uh, is pretty important. Yeah, and like you said, data breaches will ultimately affect the revenue. You know, it all points to revenue. Yeah, absolutely. It it kills revenue. I mean, you look at the Target data breach. 
which I think is the most significant cybersecurity event in history because, well, I call it day zero. Everything before that is BT or before target. <laughs> you know, we're now in the year, what, eight, AT? About to have our ninth birthday as, as a business because for the first time in history, the CEO of an organization was fired because of something IT did, which is allow a data breach. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but if there's a data breach in your organization, you allowed it to happen. There are rules in place that allowed it to happen. It's not accidental. It's not something that happens to you. It's not like physical crime. You know, I was in Paris um, with my wife a number of years ago, coming up out of the subway to my hotel and two guys jumped me and uh, they didn't get anything from me. Uh, but Still, that was accidental. I didn't do anything to create that problem. But if if in IT, if I have a rule in place that allows an unknown thing to talk to some other unknown thing, which is all data breaches, uh, then I'm surprised that data got exfilled or that command and control got set up or that a symmetric key exchange for ransomware got set up when I was allowing a lot of unknown traffic across my network. I shouldn't be surprised at that, right? All bad things happen in allow rules. Very true. And how do companies who are, I would consider more legacy older companies who have been around for 10 plus years, who've kind of inherited the infrastructure, the setup, the maybe not have really gone through a digital transformation to the level that they could to be able to protect against data exfills and hacks and to get to a zero trust model. How are they able to better shore up the infrastructure, get closer to a zero trust model with an infrastructure and architecture that has been built by people who are most likely retired or no longer part of the organization. And there's a lot of that domain knowledge and expertise that the plumbers and the electricians know about the infrastructure that's then lost. Yeah. So I have a five-step model that solves that for, and you use it for any time you're looking to do zero trust. I've done zero trust on mainframes. I've done zero trust on X.25 networks. When did, I didn't even know there were any still around, but there are. Uh, legacy isn't a problem, right? Because now you know what to protect. I need to protect the X.25 network. I need to protect the mainframe. And so the, the rush to all the exciting things, microservices, right, with DevSecOps, uh, I, I often joke that the, the developers are the Ricky Bobbies of IT, right? They just want to go fast. And so they're not thinking about cybersecurity and they're thinking about the coolness of it. I remember talking to a leader in, a, in one of the world's largest banks and about how all the developers were like, we need to get this, our main backing, banking application off the mainframe because, uh, you know, it's legacy and it's not in microservices and it needs to be in the cloud. Cloud is where all the cool kids are going. And so the, the leader very high leader said, okay, come back with me a with a proposal on how you're going to do this and how much it's going to cost. They were all excited and they figured out we can do this in five years for a billion dollars. And he's like, great, thanks for that. Threw it in the trash. And they're like, what? And he said, how are we ever going to make the billion dollars back? Have you thought about that? Well, no, we don't care about making the billion dollars back. We don't care about whether we make it back. We just know that mainframes are old and 
actually the mainframe business grows year over year. IBM's mainframe business grows. Their ZOS business grows year over year because there's certain things that mainframes do better than anything else, right? And you're starting to see some people pull back from the clouds because if you have, if you need high speed, you don't want to be in a cloud, right? If you're doing, um, on, if you're, if you're doing trading, stock trading, right? Where, uh, microseconds count. Think about that. Where microseconds count, you don't want to be in a cloud because you've just lost that game, right? So there's certain things that you need to know what your business is and design an environment and use all these tools, but there's not one best tool. And, and there's not any way that, that there's not a single system that I can't secure with zero trust because I'm not focusing on the system. I'm focusing on the thing we need to protect. So in zero trust, we bring our controls as close as possible to the thing we're trying to protect and design outward from there, right? You guys have been in this business for a long time. You know, we all learned to design networks from the edge inward. And we never actually got to to the design of, of, of the security of the thing that we're protecting because we didn't know what it is. And so um, uh, this is what we, we need to focus on. So step one of zero trust is focus on the protect surface. What do you need to protect? You know, I'm often in conversations with folks and they're, they're like, uh, uh, I'm going to put this technology here and that technology there and that technology there and, and I'll have a zero trust environment. I'm like, I'm, I'm missing something here. I'm sorry. I don't want to ruin the party. But uh, what are you trying to protect in this whole thing? And they're like, oh, we're just trying to build a zero trust network. Well, a zero trust network assumes that you know what you're trying to protect. You start with a protect surface. You shrink the attack surface down orders of magnitude to something very small and easily known called a protect surface. A protect surface contains a single DAS element. DAS stands for data, application, asset, or service. So I might take, and Chris, I know that you've been in data security for a while, right? So I might take a single data point. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm a, 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 a healthcare organization. So I want to, want to protect PHI, protected health information. So, so I'm going to take the system that controls PHI, and I'm going to say that's got to go into my protect surface, right? So that's step one. Step two is I map the transaction flows. I think, Mike, you were saying that the com- most companies don't have the anybody around who was, who was there when the system was first built. And that's why you need to understand how the system inter- works as a system. So step two is map the transaction flows. You have to know how it works. And I found this out the hard way in a legacy, so-called legacy environment, where I watched somebody take out an entire uh, restaurant chain because they pulled a server. Hey, this server's old. What's it doing in the data center? Pulled it out. Everything goes down because it was fundamental to the functioning of the payment system. Right. And, and no one had asked the question, what does it do? They asked the question, is it old or new? And uh, so that was a, that was a bad day for that person. Uh, and so then the third thing we do is then we architect the zero trust environment. No matter whether that environment's in a cloud or on premise uh, on an endpoint, it doesn't matter. SD WAN across a WAN. Uh, none of that stuff is it matters. That's just transport. That's decoupled from what we're trying to do. And this is why I'm not a big fan when everybody talks about zero trust 
reference architectures, because that goes back to a 20th century way of thinking where we could look at a design from a big vendor and we could just change the IP addresses of, of this I, uh, this Visio diagram. And then now the network works. It packets flow, right? And that's all we cared about is packets flowing. And so the business would say, hey, uh, thanks for giving me this network, uh, but it has round holes and we have square pegs. How do we deal with that? And you say, I'm going to throw in a whittling knife. You get to whittle the edges off. You have to make it fit what we've built for you. That's why the business went to shadow IT or rogue IT or all those concepts that we all think we hate. We created that. And for everybody who doesn't like going into the cloud, we created that because they said, okay, there's this thing called the cloud. All I need is a credit card and I can bypass you people in IT because you're getting in the way of the speed of business. And had we been smart, we would have jumped in to the business discussion, but we didn't. And, and I saw that happen all the time, right? Uh, so, so we need to... Um, Focus on, on it in a different way. So that's step three. Step four is writing policy. Could go into a long diatribe on, on how we should be writing policy. And then finally, we monitor and maintain. So we take all the telemetry from uh, these environments and we bring it into a system uh, that they can look at it, right? Um, all the things we think about, log management, SIMS, or uh, all those, the machine learning, AI, all the buzzwords, we do all that stuff. So, but the purpose is to take a system under load and, and re-inject the learnings from that so that we can make each, uh, each part of the protect surface stronger and stronger and stronger. And out of that, I can create an anti-fragile system. If you're familiar with the concept of anti-fragility from Taleb, a system under load gets stronger and stronger. Right. He uses the human body. We used to think of things as either fragile or robust, let's say, like a, a glass is fragile and the rock that you throw through the glass is robust. And his view is and using the human body as an analogy at times, he talks about because uh, he got big into weightlifting when his back went bad and they said, you need surgery. And he started lifting weights and putting his back under stress and suddenly under the load of that stress, it got stronger and stronger. It adapted. Hmm. And, and we can do that in cybersecurity. And so it, it, it's no longer either um, fragile or robust. It's anti-fragile. It's the opposite of all that. It's getting better. And that's what I'm trying to do now, my new company, onto it, right? I left Palo Alto Networks in March to go do managed security systems from a zero trust perspective. And if you would have told me a few years ago that I'd be doing managed services, I would have told you, uh, get back in your DeLorean, right? <laughs> uh, you don't know what you're talking about. But uh, I, I found some people who are doing it completely differently and transforming it. And so this is part of my zero trust journey. You know, eight and a half years at Forrester to create the idea, evangelize it, do some of the early work in it, four years at Palo Alto Networks to show that we could build it and now make it more easily consumable and managed for people. And so that, you know, that's my journey. I often see organizations struggle with the approach, not just to implement zero trust, but understanding if zero trust is a good fit for them. Are there any 
circumstances where an organization should not consider implementing zero trust? I think any industry that doesn't use TCP IP should not go down the zero trust route. Okay. I mean, look at it, right? We talk about industries, but we're all the same at the IT level because we all use TCP IP, right? Mm -hmm. It made the world flat. We're all directly connected to the world's worst malicious actors. We all live in the same bad neighborhood. There are no suburbs on the internet and, and TCP IP does not care what business you're in. Right. You know, I, I've had people say, I make so, I only make so-and-so of a product. No one wants to hack me. Yeah. Well, yeah. No, you sell that product, don't you? You have data. Yeah. You have storage. You have a whole lot of things that are very interesting to people. I mean, uh, uh, at the very least, maybe they want to mine Bitcoin off your servers. I mean, it doesn't have to be. It, there, there's a whole lot of different things that these people can use your infrastructure for. Yeah, I'd also say you could apply a zero trust strategy to physical security as well. Right, right. You you can absolutely about uh, and, and actually it's more you do it more in in physical security. Mm -hmm. Right. If you think about if you go into most buildings, you know, you have to have card access. If I'm a visitor, you have to have a, an escort. All those kinds of things, you know, that we, we understand. We understand zero trust in physical world better, even though people uh, often uh, get upset at the term zero trust because they think I'm saying that people aren't trustworthy. And I'm not saying that. I'm saying something much more profound. I'm seeing, saying people aren't packets. Right. Right. Because, right. Chris, you would you would say you would say that you're on the network right now. Right. But you're not on the network. You're in Delaware. Yeah. Right. You're sitting in your house in Delaware with some kind of weird fancy clock behind you because I can see where we're, we actually have our cameras on. And uh, I've been trying to figure out that clock the whole time here. So. Oh, it's the barcode symbol. Oh, it's not. Is it? It's a uh, it's barcode. So it's, you got you got the code and then you got the the bottle with the lock. Oh, OK. It's the logo. Okay. Okay. Oh, oh. But it'd be cool to put a clock on it. I'll just have it at five o'clock all the time because it's five o'clock somewhere. There you go. The clock wouldn't move. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, it's kind of cut off here a little bit. So I didn't, I didn't quite make that, uh, make, did you make that yourself? I did. Look at you, a craftsman too. But the point <laughs> is the anthropomorphization of the network is the thing that kills us, right? You aren't on the network. I'm not on the network. Mike isn't on the network. Uh, we're, 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 we're sitting wherever we are and, uh, and our computers are logged in and generating packets asserted to come from our identity. Identity is always an assertion, right? Think of SAML, security assertion markup language, right? And so it's an assertion. We're just asserting that that packet comes from Chris or Mike or John, but Chris and Mike and John are not on the network. Just the packets generated by our computers are. And I remember having this conversation with a person in the government and, uh, and, and I brought up the hypothetical. So if somebody puts a gun to my head and, uh, and, and makes me get up from my computer bef before it can log out and starts using um, my computer, is there a transference of identity? They suddenly become me, right? 
Uh, I mean, that'd be a cool movie. As soon as you touch the keyboard, you take on the, the, the identity of somebody else. And, and he says, uh, he says, yeah, John, that happens all the time. And I said, no, it doesn't. Nobody comes up and puts a gun to your head and, and, and makes you get off your computer. And he says, it's a virtual gun. Yeah. Right. They put a gun to your head. They put a gun to your head with money. They put a gun to your head with, um, uh, 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 threats. Yeah. You know, blackmail and get you to do things. Right. I mean, that's sort of the history of spying. Right. And, uh, sometimes you, you put a gun to your own head. I don't know if you saw this, uh, husband and wife who, who tried to sell secrets for a, a nuclear sub and were arrested this week. Right. And by just by the initial news count, I don't know if it's true, but it kind of looks like they put a gun to their their head. They s- tried to contact some foreign government and say, hey, we have n- nuke secrets. And that got intercepted. I mean, how do you think that that's not going to get intercepted by by the FBI? And so they were actually selling stuff to an undercover FBI person. So um, but so there's that virtual gun to your head. Right. And so if if in a regular system by by your identity you get access to almost everything because the networks are flat unsegmented and we don't have robust uh identity access controls based upon your need to know right i i tell people don't talk about least privilege talk about ask the question in a in a different way does chris need to have access to to this data to get his job done and almost always the answer is no right look at snowden and manning what was what was their attack vector? What was their what was their exploit code? The trust model. All they did is exploit the trust model, right? They were trusted users on trusted systems. They had the right ad- antivirus, the right patch levels, uh, multi good. I mean, great multi-factor authentication. Really, I mean, there was no doubt about the identity of these individuals on those systems. But no one looked at their packets post-authentication because we're trying to think, well, authentication is good enough. It's not. That proves it. So um, you got to, you know, you have to say, should Ed Snowden have had access to these resources? Should PFC Manning have access to these resources? In fact, I got to, when the Manning thing went down, uh, I ended up talking to a friend of mine, a former federal prosecutor who was involved in that case. And he said to me, when that first crossed my desk, I asked myself, why does a or how how why does does a private first class and a former operating base in Iraq have access to classified State Department cables in Washington, D.C.? How do I what? And and then he because he's known me for a long time, he said, oh, I get it. He said, I got the broken trust model right there by asking that question, you know. We give too much access to too many people for no reason at all, just because that's the way we've always done it. And uh, so uh, uh, most people don't need access to very much data to get their job done, especially today. Sometimes they get offended that their access has been cut off. I used to have access to that. But if you're doing something malicious, you know, if you cut off uh, Ed Snowden's access to, you know, certain file he doesn't call the help desk and go hey i need my access restored i was trying to steal a bunch of data here and send it over to WikiLeaks." yeah you can't justify it right yeah one of the challenges i see is 
the psychological change, as you mentioned, because a lot of this is we as humans, we inherently trust. We trust, but hopefully verify for the most part. And then organizations have this model built where they give once you have a credential and you get past the initial gatekeeper or firewall, you have keys to the kingdom. How do how can businesses scale that down while still enabling the business to have that profitability, revenue, increased speed to market? It's a fine balancing act. And I, I'm not quite sure there's a good answer to that. It's probably very dependent based upon organizations and goals and leadership and technical ability. It's probably a very complex answer. Um, but from your experience, is is it more simplified? Yeah, it's much more simplified than that. You're you're adding complexity that actually doesn't exist in the system based upon assumptions that you haven't tested, right? So what you're, you know, how many people, when you actually sit down with a business leader and say, okay, you're in charge of this data set, how many people in your organization or even how many groups in, in Active Directory need to have access to this? Oh, these three. Did you realize everybody in the company has access to that? No, never realized that, right? Because no one had ever asked the question. So it's not a very hard thing to do when you focus on what you're protecting versus the whole infrastructure as a whole. And and when you think of it as a big binary system versus taking the system and breaking it down into solvable chunks, right? I talk about, you know, the the journey. Yeah, well, you guys all know the the journey of a thousand miles begins with the first step. You eat the elephant one bite at a time, whatever your favorite consumption metaphor is, apply that to zero trust, right? And and you also, Mike, talked about, you know, trust but verify, which is the wrong thing to say, right? That's, we don't trust but verify. We just trust. No one ever actually does any verification. So we say in zero trust, verify and never trust because trust is always a bad thing. Uh, and in humans, right? I mean, if you start to def- try to define trust, it's very, very hard to define. It has spiritual and philosophical implications. It has interpersonal re- implications, uh, workplace implications. The best discussion, the, the best definition that I've ever seen that's easily consumable is from Morton Deutsch in 1958, who was a a sociologist or a psychologist or something working, looking at workplace behavior. And he said, um, and I didn't even discover this until, until just this year, because some of his papers got online uh, finally, but uh, uh, got digitized, but he was talking about trust. And his definition was trust is the willingness of one person to be vulnerable to another person. That is trust. Automatically you're vulnerable when you trust that, right? Because trust is binary. You can't measure trust. As soon as you say, yeah, I don't trust Chris as much as I used to be. Well, then you don't really trust him at all. So we can measure confidence. I have a high degree of confidence in Chris uh, because he used his real name, right? Uh, right. That's about all I know about Chris. And, and, and Chris is a, is a guy who, 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 um, you know, has passion for the industry and has started a podcast. So sure. Yeah. I want to be on it because that's the kind of people I admire, the people who have passion and, and ambition and, and, and that kind of thing. But beyond that, you know, are you a trustworthy person? I have no idea. I haven't done a background check on you. 
I haven't talked to your your family. I don't know a- anything about that to make a trust decision, right? But can I confidently join a podcast with Chris? Sure, because the downside to me is pretty low. You know, the worst that can happen is a bunch of people that I know say, can't believe you talked to that guy, Chris, right? <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time I heard that. but so so these are the things we throw around these words all the time and they don't mean anything to anybody and you use them as weapons right people tend to use them as weapons and uh oh no we we have to let uh mike on the network because he's a trusted user we have to let him have access to everything why do we have to do that because he's a trusted user well explain what that means and they can't so, so I had, I know we're probably coming up close on time, just randomly talking out loud. The, the two questions that maybe I'd like to unpack a little more are in terms of the step two mapping the transaction flow. Um, a lot of folks don't really know how to do that. Are, are there certain freeware or open source where that's available that can help them? Is that better suited to retain a managed services professional to come in and leverage some of the, you know, the big tools from the Dell's or Cisco's or Microsoft to implement that. And then the second potential question is, can a zero trust model be applied more to our personal data instead of a business? Yeah. So you can apply it. I'll take the second one first. You can apply it to um, your personal data, right? You can apply it to the way they, in which you do stuff. Uh, there's a book called Well Aware from George Finney, who is the CISO of Southern Methodist University, a good friend of mine. But um, um, I'm I'm kind of the inspiration for one of his chapters, the chapter on the skeptic, right? So yeah, you want to 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 think about how you use your own data. And a lot of it isn't in your control. You just can't do anything about it. So don't worry about the stuff that's outside of your control. Uh, But there's things that are outside of your control, but you don't have liability on. I mean, the great thing about credit cards, even over cash or Bitcoin, is that um, you don't hold liability if if, uh, your car gets stolen or gets misused. Right. No one has ever paid a dollar in liability for their car being stolen or, or their car being fraudulently used. You're indemnified from that. Right. You can't get your cash back. You can't get your Bitcoin back. But dang, you won't be, you know, you call up the credit card company. Hey, I didn't make this charge. They'll refund that right away. Right. Because it's in their biz- business best interest to do that. So. Uh, that's a great example of something that you can control, right? You you know, a lot of people are like, I don't want to be tracked. And so I'm going to just carry cash anywhere, everywhere. So you're walking along some urban street with $5,000 in cash. Well, if you get mugged, which there's a decent probability I've been mugged. Uh, so if you get mugged, you're never getting that back. And so you, you, you know, think about uh, uh, those things. I mean, you're being tracked anyway, so <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, you kind of have to give up on some of those things unless you want to be Ted Kaczynski and live in a, live in a 
little shack in Montana. Um, but if you want to live in, in this world, yeah, there's going to be, there's going to be things that are unpleasant about it. And so that's the answer to the second, second question. The first question related to the transaction flow mappings, you know, I don't know that there's good open source tools. I haven't seen them. I mean, I've seen things that partially do it. Um, it's a hard thing to do. So it takes a lot of, of, development work and that's often why you i mean you can get some of it just from doing an nmap scan right uh, but you really need to track the whole thing and you can do some of it just by interviewing people that's what i do a lot of times because i want an approximation of the transaction flow and i don't need to see everything but i want to talk to enough people that i get an, a sense of how it moves because that's going to tell me where the protect surfaces, where the micro perimeters are going to be, where the controls need to be. And if there's something in between uh, control A and control B that I don't know about, it probably doesn't matter. I'm probably not going to break it. And I'm absolutely not going to take anything out of the system. Right. That's what I've seen people do. Right. They go, this is old. I mean, I've seen that way too many times. Why is this Windows 2000 server still here? pull it out. Oh, it ran something. Cause there's things like, uh, there's a lot of stuff still running on windows XP, uh, because it runs a PLC controller in a manufacturing environment and there's no driver for windows 10 for that PLC. And there's nothing that you can do about that, but you can put a micro perimeter around that system. You can't change out the computer but you can't put a micro perimeter around the network traffic that controls the system. No, those, those are both really good answers. I like the zero trust model around the credit card aspect, right? That's, that's a great example of, you know, making sure that you are protecting yourself through other methods. You know, your credit card company almost becomes your, your micro perimeter around your asset protection, um, or your data protection. And then in terms of mapping the flows, yeah, I know when I started learning about things like NSX and micro segmentation, I was like, ooh, this is, this is important. This is the ability to self-contain and isolate what needs to talk to itself, leverage mapping and technology to see who's talking to who and what servers and what networks and what domains and what um, VLANs and XYZ. And then you rip it down to just a bare minimum. And then once you have that bare minimum, we know server A needs to talk to server B because it's an app and a database. Then through business justification and through business process, people can come to you and say, okay, I need to connect to this server additionally. Well, then you have the conversation of why, who has access, what's on there. Is it personal, private, PHI? And then from that zero trust model, you can expand into an efficient way of providing that access and that uh, credentialing, but controlling it in a way that doesn't give the keys to the kingdom that if somebody like another Snowden or Manning comes in and they start figuring out how deep can we get into the rabbit hole, they're stopped at a certain point. Right, right. And that's what you're trying to do, right? I talk, I talk and a lot of people talk about blast radius, right? So, what is the maximum size of the, of, of the damage that I'm willing to occur in a system? The blast radius. And so I'm controlling the blast radius technologically. 
So am I solving every single problem? Sometimes people will, this, this thing could happen here and we could have, we could have uh, uh, malware propagation here. Well, yeah, you could, but it's within the same system. So the system's already down, right? And malware is propagating somewhere that it doesn't matter, right? So, uh, you know, you'll clean up the whole system. I mean, you, you're never going to make it perfect. And uh, too many people are saying, well, I'm not going to do anything because it's not perfect. And they're going to they're going to uh, they're going to sacrifice greatness for perfection. And that's always dangerous. John, in terms of the evolution of zero trust, from your perspective, what do you feel is next? Where does zero trust go from here? Well, uh, I see the technology that that we can use to deploy zero trust environments getting better and better and better. Uh, Of course, COVID was a thing that propelled zero trust hugely because now you started to have to think about assets that you didn't control and giving people access to resources in a granular way. But the, the, the strategy, I don't think, is going to change. I don't think it needs to. I think um, uh, what needs to happen is more adoption of it. The future of zero trust is it gets more universally adopted. And you're starting to see that as governments mandate it, right? So there's guidance or mandates from the U.S., from the Netherlands, from the U.K., from Singapore, from Norway. Those are just the ones off the top of my head. So this is global and there are zero trust environments on all seven continents in the world. Zero trust is, is a huge iceberg. The stuff that you see publicly is the very small tip of the iceberg. The stuff that's happened underneath all that, the stuff that I can't talk about is massive. It's not accidental that the president of the United States says everybody's going to start adopting zero trust. That wasn't like, Oh, let's pull the latest buzzword out. That's, you know, 11 years of hard work uh, on my part and other people's parts to uh, help people understand the value of this. So, um, yeah, the, I think we're going to just see more adoption as more people uh, are able to, to cut through the vendor spin and get to the, the real model, the real um, methodology. Then then they'll then they'll go, oh, OK, because this vendor spin, I mean, I gave four speeches last week. And every single, every single one, somebody came up and said, you know, I was getting tired of the, of the vendors saying, here's my zero trust product. And it never seemed right to me. And so people are figuring it out on their own. And so that's great because we want to see this. We want to see things being protected and uh, focus on the protection, not the technology. Where were your speeches? Were they on site or? Virtual? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I did two in San Francisco, one in Houston, and one in Dallas last week. So nice. Starting to get back on the road. So, in all of your travels, where would you say is the coolest bar you have ever been to? Uh, the coolest bar is um, uh, the Hilton in Dublin. The Conrad Hilton, or is it the Conrad Hilton in Dublin? One of the Hiltons in Dublin, I think it's the Conrad. I'm not sure exactly which which one of the Hilton brands, but it has this great, it's a great old building and it has this great um, 
uh, uh, metal. I don't know. It's like this metal map thing that was handmade in, in the 19th century. And, and it has that you can get the best Irish coffee there. Cause, uh, that's kind of my favorite drink is Irish coffee. And they will explain to you the history of Irish coffee and they will make the foam themselves and they will do every step in, in front of you and talk to you about it and, 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 and uh, give you the history of Ireland at the same time. So uh, that's my favorite one. That's awesome. The old style hotels, you know, especially in Europe, some of them are very, there's a lot of tradition. You go to the Claridge in, uh, in London, you go to, you know, different ones and, and there's history there. So, uh, you know. Yeah. Well, and if you're in Austin, the Driscoll Hotel, which is also one of my favorites. Uh, they don't have anything like a, a drink or anything that, that they're well known for. It's the ambiance. And when you sit there, it's almost you see, you know, the ghosts of LBJ and all these big oil people and everybody making wheeling and dealing and making decisions that have affected the history of the world. You can almost see their ghosts materialize in front of you because there are ghosts in the Driscoll Hotel. Wow. So, uh, yeah, you want to go there. It's right on sixth street and, uh, what a really famous, uh, building and, uh, uh, it's been restored back to its original, uh, glory from, from the original days of the cattle drives and all that kind of stuff. So you, you're sitting in a bar that probably, uh, you know, uh, Charles Goodnight once sat in probably, or certainly, you know, HL Hunt sat in there or, or probably uh, Howard Hughes, somebody like that would have sat in there when he was drilling oil, when he, well, he wasn't drilling oil. He was making the, his dad made the drill bits. Right. So, uh, uh, yeah, you, 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 you have that sense of history. Well, I just heard last call here. You got time for one more. Sure. So if you decided to open a cybersecurity theme bar, Hmm what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Oh man. I, I don't know. I, there you got me on a question that I've never been asked before. Um, I, I don't know what I'm, I, yeah, I don't know what that would be. I mean, you know, zero trusty, zero trustees bar. I don't know. Uh, and, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, it'd be the place where, where no one knows your name. <laughs> I love that. I know of a place like that. I, there's a place um, where you go and you're not allowed to use your, your full name or ask anybody what they do for a living or anything, because it's designed for people in, uh, shall we say, businesses that don't want to use their name for them to hang out. And so, uh, there's certain rules for you to go in. And one of them is, uh, don't, don't tell anybody your full name. You can use an alias if you want and don't ask them any personal questions about themselves and talk about stuff that is unrelated to anything that they might do for a living. So you don't have to worry about getting carded at the door either. No. Or is it only effective when you walk in? (laughs) It's only effective when you walk in, but you can't get in. Like you have to know somebody to get in it's not like uh it's 
it's it's it's not open to the public. They don't do happy hours on Thursdays or whatever. No, <laughs> right. you know. So somebody has to trust you to allow you to get the credentials to access. Well, somebody has to know you. They don't have to trust you because there's nothing to be trusted about. They just have to say, let him let John come in because I know him and, you know, he'll play by the rules. All they all they have to do is all you have to do is play by the rules here. Right. So it's not about trust. It's about playing by the rules. And the rules are very clear. You know, don't tell anybody your name. Don't ask anybody their name and don't talk about business. So, John, before you leave, would you mind telling us where our listeners can find you online? I'm on LinkedIn uh, and I'm on Twitter at uh, at Kindervog. So pretty easy to find. Well, thanks so much again for your time today. I really appreciate it. You take care. Yeah, thanks, John. Hey, thanks a lot. Barcode patrons. If you like this episode and would like to support the podcast, rate us on Apple Podcasts and visit our Patreon site, patreon.com slash barcode podcast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, check out the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.